0: welcome back to the channel there must be something in the air a number of listeners to the plenary session podcast have written in and they all have the same question which is can you do a show slash video about how to apply for and accept the perfect first job and so i'm trying to do that here i'm trying to do that here this is a video that is going to be primarily geared towards people in my line of work hematologists oncologists who are finishing their clinical training looking for that first job probably going to talk mostly about an academic job but what if you're in a different line of work is this video still worth it for you I think it might be give it a chance it might be worth it for you as well so let's get started what do you need to think about when you apply for and receive that perfect first job and these are my views and that's I think what people want they want my views unvarnished I'm gonna give it to you very honestly I'm not gonna hold anything back here are all my views number one think about what you want This is the part of the job search that people don't talk enough about, and I think they gloss over. It's the most important thing. Think about what you really want. Do you really want to be doing that? Look around you. Who out there has the job that you like, the career you like, the work hours that you like? What do you really want? And be very careful. There is a seduction, of course, in academic medicine that you want to be the next big name. You want to be maybe the chair of the department. I think many people are seduced by those brass rings, I call them, because like brass rings, they're just mere tokens, they're not really worth it. I think the truth is, you should be more deliberative about what you actually like to do in life, what you're good at, what you would actually want to do, and focus on that, because the worst thing you can do is to set down on a path three years, five years, seven years down the road, you might realize that you're actually not that interested in it, it really wasn't your passion, but you felt an obligation to do it. You don't wanna make that mistake. So, my next rule. To help you do that, I think it's important that you actually write down a five-year plan. A few, not a few years ago, seven, eight, nine years ago, somebody I was interviewing with, of all the places I was interviewing, this person said, I want you to write a five-year plan. Where do you see yourself in five years? Could be two, three pages, email it to me and uh, we'll talk about the potential job after you do that exercise. And the first thing I felt was deep irritation. I'm like, why are you burdening me with this writing task that no one else asks? It's such a pain, but years later I felt a deep gratitude, and the reason is now I can go back and read that. I have one, you know, something from the the lockbox that's that's a that's, a, that's a, that, that captured how I felt in the moment. What did I want to do in five years? And then I look back seven years later. You know, maybe if you all uh, uh, upvoted in the comments, maybe someday I'll actually read you what I wrote. You know, when I started, and then read you where I was five years later, because I think it was really an instructive exercise. I've done that, done that a few. Few months ago. So I want you to write something like that. It will really help you. And you will really appreciate a few years later that you had something to see where did you outperform what you set out to do and where did you underperform and where did you realize that you were wrong to really want those things in the first place? Where did you change as a person? And I think you'll find that super valuable in whatever career you are. Next. Then I want you to think about it a little bit more Imagine that everything you're saying is wrong. You don't really want that or you're going to fail miserably at that. Then write up your backup plan. What's your backup five-year plan? What's a different thing you might do in five years that might make you equally happy? And and the truth about life is we all probably have some thermostat where we set it our happiness and whatever happens to us, we're going to eventually creak back up to our, our set point. So it doesn't really matter. You're probably going to be equally happy. But let me give you an example. Your What you want to do might be, I want to be an academic trialist doing a day and a half of clinic and of that day and a half, at least half a day is just trial patients and I want to publish X number of papers in X journals and be the PI of X many studies and of this many investigator-initiated studies or whatever. That might be your initial five-year plan be known as an expert in whatever, in a regional level or something like that. But then your backup plan might be, let's say your career as a trialist blows up catastrophically. What's your backup plan? It might be something like, you know, I just want to take good care of patients. I want to have some residence in my clinic. I want to do some teaching service. What's your backup plan, you know? And sometimes the truth about life is it's actually the backup plan is what you really want. You're just, you know, afraid to admit it to yourself. So I think that's why it's important to write your plan and then really tear it to pieces or Put it in a, you know, set it aside, but tear it to pieces in your mind and write your backup plan. The next thing I'll say there's more to life, there's more to life than being well. I, before I say this, I have to say I have a colleague, and this is I heard from a colleague. This is a colleague who does a lot of work with the biopharmaceutical industry. And this colleague was recently talking with a uh, senior vice president of a very important firm, and the very important firm, uh, senior vice president, leaned over to this person and said, you know, how do you feel working as my mid-level? And this person said, excuse me? What do you mean by that? I said, no, no, I'm just joking with you. But what he what he meant was that you're the mid-level for pharma. You're running all my trials. You're essentially the nurse practitioner or PA of the pharmaceutical industry. You're not making many decisions on your own. I give you the protocol. It's my trial. I'm the pharma executive. You're my mid-level. And it kind of put it in perspective. It was jarring to my colleague who took it as obviously uh, meant to be a bit offensive, a bit of a prod. But I think we need to at least entertain this idea that running academic trials at a university might be to some degree, you're the extension of pharma doing something that the pharmaceutical executive doesn't want to do, which is stay late, field calls, work in Epic. And so you gotta be very careful that if you say you want it, be very careful that it might be more to life than being what this executive would consider and i wouldn't but what the executive has said is a mid-level for the pharmaceutical industry the thing i want you to consider is consider that there's more to life than one disease i see so many people saying oh i really want to do you know lung. i really want to do pancreas i really want to do lymphoma really really you really just want to do one disease for the rest of your life oh i would just want to be the expert in one disease oh oh that's different you're saying you wanna have deep content expertise in at least one field. That I get. I wanna have that too. But here's the difference. I don't wanna confine it to one field. I wanna have that deep content expertise in many, many domains, many different fields. Why do you? Why are you settling for one? Why do you really wanna just be the expert in one thing? There's more to medicine than one thing. You're giving up so much of the beauty of medicine. You're giving up perspective. You're giving up the vantage. You're giving up the panoramic view if you focus myopically on one thing. And if you ask yourself, and I know lots of young people who say, "I want to be a doctor." And you ask them, you know, well, what type of doctor you want to be? I want to be a surgeon. I want to be this doctor. I want to be that doctor. I very rarely say, "I want to be a doctor that only takes care of insert one disease." I very rarely hear that because, to be honest, I think for many of us, or at least maybe I'm just talking about myself, but I think many other people, part of the aspiration of being a doctor is I want to feel, and I increasingly feel this way in my life. But I wanted to feel. I set out to feel that if anybody in my sphere, you know. An uncle's brother and uncle's you know, an uncle's brother that's also an uncle an uncle's cousin, an uncle's brother-in-law, you know, a great-grandparent's friend. If anybody has a medical issue and that person asks me, hey, my so and so is dealing with this issue knee issue, cancer issue, cardiovascular issue. You got any thoughts? You got any advice on who they could see, what they might want to think about? I want it to feel like I'm in a place where, whatever that issue is, if it's in medicine, I'll be able to say, you know, what I know about it. Hopefully, it's more than zero. Maybe have some idea of the algorithms around it. And so all my medical training, I set out to do that. You know, I took a lot of rotations in medical school of things I knew I wasn't gonna go into because I wanted to have some content knowledge of that. And when you get presented with that situation, it's remarkable. If you have a little bit of content knowledge, a little bit of the scaffolding in your mind, and you read a few articles, you read some up-to-date, you really build it kind of very quickly. And often you get some ideas for you know different research projects which we're working on in broadly in biomedicine. Maybe only about 60, 70% of our research work is actually in oncology, we have other projects. So that's an example, and that's medicine broadly. And I certainly just cannot understand the appetite in Hemonc to only know one disease. I think it's very close-minded and it's actually not good. I think over-specialization is deeply harmful. And I believe that the, the writer David Epstein has a great book on this called Range, and you should check that out. Okay, the next thing I wanna say. You do need to, I think, think about all the things in life you're juggling besides your job. Where your family is where you want to live what are places that you know have the activities you like what places feel like home what places feel like too far you got to consider all that i can't do that work for you my next piece of advice start early you know everyone's always talks about how long it takes but that necessarily leads to the next part which is you got to start early i believe you should start a year and a half before you actually want to take the job that's about how long these things take And it's really important because the more time you have up front, the more time you have to collect information that will help your decision. So start early. Uh, How do you do that? One, you look at websites. There's a lot of career websites in oncology. There's the JCO career website. There's the ASH career website. There's the New England Journal of Medicine career website. That's the weakest of the bunch. The ASCO website, I think, has much more listings. Um, there are also different universities actually do a decent job of listing things. You know, the university of California system has to list all things per HR. I think a number of public universities have those HR requirements that they have to list these postings and to list on these websites like ASCO or Ash, I think they got to pay like $5,000 and a lot of places are pinching pennies and they don't want to pay that to list. So you might find listings at specific universities that you want to look at that are not going to be on the ASCO website. I think it's important because in my experience and the experience of others, I think the vast majority of interviews you actually get will come from places that have advertised a spot. I always think it's possible to get an interview for a job that doesn't yet exist, but I think most people, they have advertised for a spot and that's why they are looking. They're looking for someone. Email chairs and chiefs. If you know that their programs you're kind of interested, email the chief of, I guess if it's gonna be the one disease type, it would be the one disease type, but better, you're better off emailing the chief of the department, the chair of the department to just say, what are the needs in your department? Do you have any open searches? What are they in? Um, or are you looking for, you know, if you're so wedded to just one tumor type, which I really just don't, I don't I'm not sympathetic to, but if you are, then you can ask about that. Uh, circle back, whatever people tell you, I think every four to six months, it's worth a friendly circle back because in my own experience, there are many places that said, oh, we're not hiring and we're not going to be hiring for years. Six months later, I emailed them and say, oh my God, we're hiring right now. Uh, when can you interview? And then they immediately send a contract like right after one interview, uh, would you sign this? Uh, that reflects that I think people don't know what's coming. I mean, that's the reality. They don't know who's going to move. They don't what know what needs they're going to have and things can pop up all the time. And so, And they'll forget about you. I mean, they have no incentive to remember you. So you need to be proactive. And if you really want to go to some university, cancer center, location, touch base every few months. It do, You know, the thing about email, I mean, I don't know how to, exp- do I have to explain to people how to send emails? Um, as you get more advanced in life, you want emails to be shorter and shorter. You don't want prelude. You don't want anything in that email other than a very quick, what is the point of this email? Do I need to respond? And imagine the person you're emailing is 10 times busier than where you are and how jaded that person might be. No paragraphs, no huge story about your life. Just get to the point. Do you know, what are your three questions? You know, and maybe a quick introduction. Hi, Doctor so and so. You know, I'm a big fan of your work, or I've seen you here, or if so and so told me about it, or I read this paper of yours, you know, something to just ice break quick, and then boom, here are my three questions, let's get on with it. Nobody wants to read anything more than that. I can promise you that. Okay. This is an important point. Of course. All things being equal, they're going to hire their own fellow. Let's be honest here. All things being equal, you're obviously going to hire your own fellow. than you would hire somebody from a different institution unless... You really don't like that fellow. See, that's the, that's the whole thing. What is a job interview? A job interview is uh, a series of 20 to 30 minute talks to predict how you're gonna get along and how someone's gonna work if they had a job for a year or two years or five years. That's what a job interview is. What's the best job interview ever? Getting to work with someone for a year or two years or five years. And that's what they've got with their own fellows. And so, in my experience, the vast majority of fellows that the institution really likes they're going to find, and by institution, I mean the probably people in the bubble around that person. They will find a way. They'll make a job if they have to. They'll find a way to keep an opening for that person, and uh, and they're going to always take that person over, even the most brilliantly qualified person on paper, from somewhere else, because why would you take a gamble? Yes, they look wonderful, but those selection filters of interviews are very very poor maybe that's the part i'm leaving out the interview is a very very poor filter working one year in a job is a very very robust filter of future predictive value working talking to somebody for 20 minutes is a, incredibly poor we're talking about criterion validity coefficients of like 0.1 to 0.3 very very poor predictor of job performance across the psychology literature and no one would only a fool would prioritize an interview and that feeling over having worked with someone for a long time so if they like somebody and even if that person's not perfect they're probably going to keep that person it actually reminds me you know there is a mathematical way in which people can decide when you have a problem, which is sometimes called the dowry problem, the marriage problem, the secretary problem, when you're interviewing people consecutively for a single position, but you have to decide after every interview, if you're going to hire or not hire, can't just keep stringing 100 people along, what's the optimal way to do it. And you can read about that. It's a very interesting line of literature. Um, But this is a good example where you're not going to be chasing perfection. When you have something that's reasonably good, and that's a known fact, you're not going to gamble that away for the potential that somebody else is better. You're always going to take your own. Okay, ask your mentor to email. I think that works a fair bit if the person you work with, your mentor, has a good relationship with somebody in another place. Um, The first date, this is what I write. So I actually think the best way to approach this is to message people two or three months before the conference the year before you want the job. Here's why. What's the major conference in your field? For us, it's ASCO. And I think it's really important to message people in the places you're interested in maybe two to three months before ASCO because ASCO, they're probably gonna be there. And ASCO is the lowest stress situation to meet someone face to face. We all know that everything good in life happens face to face. Nothing good in life happens on Zoom. Uh, It's not the same experience, and they wanna meet you face to face. Now, of course, if they're gonna interview you face to face, they have an outlay. They have to budget out their time, make sure they're in town, get all the scheduling. Oh, what a headache. They also have to pay for it. What a headache. But ASCO is a very low stress, low commitment way to meet a lot of people. So you should set up meetings with people. You're like, look, I know you don't have a job, but you're willing to talk for 15 minutes, maybe, you know, keep the lines of communication open. It'll make your emails much more likely to be read in the future. And I think that's a very low stakes way to kind of just get your foot in the door and meet people. And actually, uh, the, the first job I ended up taking was due to a, a similar such meeting where I hit it off with somebody. All right. Go on lots of interviews. They pay. That's what I write. Go on. This is the first time in your professional life that they're paying for it. You're not paying for it. In residency, you pay. Medical school, you pay. Fellowship, you pay. But this, they're paying. They gotta pay for your flights, your travel, your food, they gotta pay for everything. So the incentive the only downside is time. And you know what you need to do? I know it's tiring. You need to suck it up because it's a great opportunity to go to a lot of places. I think I did 11 interviews the first job I took. I did fewer the second job I took. But it's important to go to a lot of places, especially early in your life, where you don't even know what the landscape is like. You're gonna meet people, you're gonna get to see facilities, you're gonna see a range of different um, working environments, what it's like. You need to soak that up. I actually think that this whole movement towards Zoom, residency, and fellowship, you know, it's terrible. I mean, people talk about how, it is unfair that, that trainees have to shoulder the financial burden. And uh, while I wish that argument was salient, here's why it's not salient. Um, you know, there is a financial burden that trainees have to shoulder that is unfair and it's maybe 10 to 20 times larger than the, the cost of travel. You know what that is? That's the the cost of the horrifically priced medical education itself. Okay, so that's the real problem. That's the big problem. This travel, a little bit of extra loans to go on a few talks when you do it on the cheap, it's not a, I, I really don't think that that's the, the substantive deal breaker here. Um, and, and I think what you're losing by these Zoom interviews is you're losing a lot, a lot. You're not soaking up the culture of different places. And so it could be. Somebody who's finishing fellowship right now has literally only been to four academic medical centers or two, or even maybe one. Whereas in the case of myself and others, we had been to 20, 25, 30 between the medical school process and the residency process, and maybe the fellowship process, maybe even 30, 40 different places I've seen. It's important to have that perspective. I mean, you know. And now at this point in my life, I've been to you know, hundreds of hundreds of talks uh, across the world and I've seen so many more facilities and I have a much greater appreciation of that and how important it is um, to really frame the way you think of a place. So I do think you need to take this opportunity. The excuse is gone of the financial part. They're gonna pay for it. So go as, on as many interviews as, as you can reasonably schedule in your, in your life. And uh, if anything, you should try to block out research time then so you can do it. The job talk. You know, I hear sometimes people talk about the job talk and say the dreaded job talk. It's a dreaded, if it's so dreaded, then maybe I think you better go back to step one and rethink what you wanna do in life. Because if it's really so onerous for you to describe what you have done in research and where you see it going and what you want your career to be, then maybe the academy is really not the right place. I'm not saying this tongue in cheek. I mean, I really mean this. It should be a pleasure to give your job talk. It should be the thing you're actually excited about. And I see so many errors of job talk. Um, that I want to talk about. But my first thing is, if you really view it as a big anchor, um, maybe you're applying for the wrong job. I know some people who do. They just want to be a clinician. I'm going to give some job talk. I want somebody to give a job talk about neutropenic fever. That's not a job talk. That's a boring educational talk that should be given to somebody in like the orientation week of a Hemong Fellowship, not a job talk. Job talk is a conceptual talk. It's about what we know, what the future is. You're trying to get people to think fundamentally differently about your field or about you know cancer more broadly. Uh, it's really sort of a visionary piece. It's really sort of your, your claim for why you feel like an academic career is important to you, why you really want that. And if you are not getting uh, enthusiastic about doing that, uh, maybe it's not the right field for you. And the other part of the business is, I don't know if you know this, but the more you do this, you got to give a lot of talks. I mean, you got to give a lot of talks. I'm seven years in. I think I'm 1,000 talks. You're going to give a lot of talks. You're going to get a lot better at giving talks the more talks you give. You're going to be a whole lot better after 200 talks than after 10 talks. You don't even know, but you will be. And you need to get those under your belt. And you need to start to actually take some pride in that. That's a great opportunity to disseminate your ideas in a way far beyond what a paper can do. Because people will see you and they'll know how you made them feel in that moment about the idea. And many of them may get really turned on by those ideas. So if you're really dreading it, go back to step one, rethink the whole thing. Um, make sure the talk is not bad. And how can it be bad? One, it shouldn't just be about your, only your work. I think that's a big mistake people make. Oh, I did this, I did this, I did this, me, 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 me. I, I don't want to hear that. I want, I want you to float in to the space you're working in and give me the big lay of the land you know, if your space is whatever, you know, uh, IDH mutant AML, well, tell me about what's been going on in that space, you know, and imagine that I'm the person who spent all my time focusing on a different disease. So I know nothing about AMLs. Thankfully, I'm not that person, but that's a person in your audience. So give me the lay of the land. And then explain to me a little bit why the spot you've decided to focus on is really important. um, And then build that out. And then so the first, you know, 10-15 minutes, you got to give me the lay of the land, then you got to spend 25, you know, minutes, maybe talking about you know what did you do? Where what's the work you're doing, or you've done, and where you see it going? And then the end has got to be where you see it going, or what's the bigger picture? And you gotta really have to make the case of like, why does this matter? Why is it important to you? Um, my job talk, which maybe again, if it's upvoted in the comments, maybe I'll even see if I can post it online. I think I might even have a version with recording on it. Boy, I'll have to think about that. It's not gonna be it's not gonna be that good because I don't think I had done as many talks at the time, but. What was my job talk? It was called translation failure and medical reversal, and had a simple thesis. We've done all this work on medical reversal, and we were doing and, and oncology was hot about translation failure. What does that mean at the time? circa 2014, there was a huge interest in why so many candidate drugs in the oncology pipeline didn't materialize. They didn't come to the U.S. market, and they didn't succeed. We called those translation failure. There was this huge apparatus to try to improve upon efficiency. That's still, you know, an important research focus, and we've actually done some papers on that. How can we make that better? But one flip side of the coin was that in an effort to make that better, we were lowering the regulatory bar for approval. We've lowered it a whole lot lower since those days, but we are lowering it for approval. And that actually can improve translation failure. You have more translation, the lower the bar is. But you'll have another problem, a more insidious problem. And that problem might be that some of what you do for many years turns out not to work. And that's a medical reversal and we had published all this work on reversal so the premise of my talk was to open with talk about all the translation failure in oncology why it happens how it happens ways in which we're trying to address it and then explain by the one way we're trying to address it lowering the regulatory standard has this counteracting effect of paradoxically increasing reversal and so you know it's a policy talk which is my wheelhouse it's epidemiology which is my wheelhouse It's drug development my wheelhouse and it's cancer broadly panoramic examples from many different tumor types i also like to not just have high-level concepts and papers. I like to also zoom in on real examples. I think it has Promaecytobalm in it. It has and Sharp. It has many of the examples that I really like to use and now have now been codified in the book, medical reverse, uh not medical reversal, codified in the book, malignant. So you need to work hard on it, take pride in it, and um, you need to talk about your conceptual thinking. And it shouldn't just be things you helped out on. It should be like, what was your conceptual thinking? Um, I think that's very important, and if you're lucky, somebody you know and trust will actually listen to you deliver it, and you can practice with them a few times. And I was so lucky that somebody, a senior person at the NCI, did that for me, and I appreciate it a lot. Set up the second looks fast. As soon as you go on the first one, there's going to be a second one. Nobody wants to tell you any, you know, it's, it's an interesting line of work we're in. That You go on one whole job interview, and you literally exit that interview. You have no idea what the job is like. No one has put anything on paper from the pay to the hours to the clinical duties. It's all very talked about vaguely. It's all this elaborate, uh, you know, uh, trying to persuade you that it might be a good fit and vice versa. But no one's actually put, you know, ink to paper. So you need to go on the second look so you can start to get something on paper. Try to get multiple letters. Uh, A big mistake I think people make is they only get one offer and they stop. Uh, You need to pursue this enough that you're getting at least a few written offers so that at least you have something to compare something against. One is probably not enough. So I would say don't take the first offer. Get multiple other offers. Um, Be polite, but try to buy time to respond to people. So try to push things out a little bit. Okay. I sometimes hear people say everything can be negotiated. I think that that's probably increasingly untrue in a world where um, there are clear rules about rank. I just heard the story of somebody who got hired as, a, I don't know, a full professor or an associate professor, but the university, when they actually put them through the promotions committee, they're like, this is not, no, this doesn't warrant that. And they got instantly demoted, but they were already kind of deep into it and um, they felt slighted, but you know, I don't know. It's, it's it's not really a secret, you know. I always see people, people wondering why am I like. It's not really a secret. You can just Google everybody in the institution who has that rank. Average all their indices, their papers, the authorship, the h index, what they're doing, what their research contributions are. Read a few papers if you want to be more granular to see if you think they're really impactful or not. Uh, look up their trial portfolio. Look up you know their uh, other activities. Their uh, you know how many talks they're giving. Um, these days, everyone is telegraphing everything they're doing. Um, And so you shouldn't be surprised that somebody's gonna say that, oh, actually it's not full professor level here, it's actually associate professor. People are more or less looking to see what ballpark you're in, and an institution may have its own sort of, its own ballpark. And you know, Harvard is notoriously known for that what it takes to get to the top is actually rather difficult. So, you know, not everything can be negotiated. The salary these days are often on scales some places have made their skills public um, so that they have no uh, discrimination between the salaries, and so that's non-negotiable, and, and also the latter rank is often non-negotiable because it's based on very objective things that are hard to uh, negotiate if they're not on the CV. Uh, but other things are negotiable like uh, how much time you're spending in clinic, what kind of research support you have. People don't ask about parking spots. I think you should as somebody who uh, uh, doesn't have a parking spot and never had a parking spot. Uh, but I guess it encourages me to uh, ride my bike a lot more, which I I guess is good. But I still would like to have the spot. So, those things matter. And I think um, staff support matters a great deal. Um, how do you actually do the negotiation? My thoughts on how do you negotiate are simple. I think, can't just be verbal. You should talk to people. These days with Zoom, you could actually sh- you say have a Zoom meeting with somebody and share your screen and have bullet points of the things you wanna talk about. Uh, or right before the zoom meeting you say 5 minutes before i'm just going to send you a word document if you could open it up for our talk so that we're looking at the same paper why is that important because in the heat of the moment and these people who are interviewing and hiring people all the time they're very good and dexterous at eliding the answers to questions oh will you have your own assistant oh well you know that we're getting a new program here and then the next thing you know you've forgotten to ask the question again you need a set of bullet points so they don't steer you off topic and so i think there's got to be share screen got to be the word document frame everything as this is about your success and the success you're going to bring the department. I I think that's right. You know, although it feels like job and asking for things is uh, narcissistic, I mean, I I understand why it might feel that way. At the same point, you know, there's a re, I mean, universities depend on the reputation that comes from hiring good people. And a university that hires a bunch of people who don't perform, is going to have a mediocre reputation. And so I think that your success and their success are tied uh, to some degree and that universities. I mean what makes a university great is it's the collection of the best students there and the best faculty there that's what's driving the, the the goodness of the university I'll tell you what it's not it's not the administrators I mean that's not what it is um, it's not the it's not the deans it's it's the it's the it's the people doing the 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 cognitive labor um, everyone talks about 3 years I have an expletive written on my paper. Uh, I say, we need to talk more about five years. Three years is, is over in a blink of an eye. Uh, titles are meaningless. Oh, oh, they're gonna sweeten the pot and make you associate director of the blah, 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 blah. Forget it. Title is, is nothing. Title is not a real thing. You can call me whatever you wanna call me. The only things that matter are what, what's my time? Where's that gonna be spent? And what's my pay gonna be like? And uh, how much of my time is my own to control? Uh, that's what really matters. Uh, titles. Don't be seduced by brass rings. Um, get several opinions from other people without disclosing how you feel. This is very important. Once you get those written contracts, you should send it to a few people you know and trust. Get their opinions about the different jobs. Don't tell each other what the other person thinks and don't tell any of them what you think because you the whole point of getting opinions in life is you want the opinion to be independent. If you tell people what you think, people will often... Go back. What you're saying to them? Sometimes they can quickly read it in your face. Um, you need to do it in a way that you don't play your hand. Yes, you know what you think, and yes, you may be excited. But the person whose opinion you want, presumably you want it because they have a different opinion. They might see something that you don't see, and so I think that's very important. So you should give them that data, the raw data, and let them make their decision and give you some advice. Um, but then you don't have to heed their advice, of course. But at least it gets you some impartiality in your advice. Um, Secretly interview people who work there. The places that you're really considering, uh, there are the people you met and there are the people you didn't meet. Find the people you didn't meet and email them and secretly talk to them on the phone for 20 minutes and see what life's like there. Those are the people you really want to hear from. Uh, Ask if people achieve what they set out to do there. Uh, Most places, I think the answer is no. Most places, a lot of people go in wanting to be trialists. They burn out. They don't do it. Uh, a lot of people go in, I mean, the trialist, I mean, I feel like sometimes people take it for granted that what you want to do in academic oncology is be a trialist. I think that that's um, one of the worst, uh, a, a, uh, you know, I mean, I, I'm grateful that somebody does it, but I don't think, uh, I think it is highly overrated as a, as, a, as a something to spend your time in and not as satisfying as teaching, taking excellent care of people and often forces you into uh, infinite infinite contradictions and uh, and contortions as you try to preserve your ethics while you're running a trials agenda that is often anything but anything but um, don't do research years no extra fellowship don't be uh, bamboozled you know, oh, we'll bring you on but you have to do a couple years of extra fellowship uh, this is not a free labor business like you can hire me or not hire me we're not playing this game uh, don't bank on one mentor assume that the person you really want to work with there they're already signing another job. For, for Merck. Now, I don't know where it is, but it's probably going to be for Farmer They're already moving. Assume they're moving. Assume that person you really like there. They're moving already. They're moving next month. They're not even told you yet. Um, go there only if, assuming that they were moving, you're still going to want to be there. Be realistic. Uh, I think you do need to talk to other people to get a sense of what people are offered. I think it would be unrealistic uh, to think that, um, you know, I mean, in terms of packages, in terms of hours, I mean, I think you want to be you know, know, know what you've done and know what people like you are getting. I, I think that a mistake can come if you're you're unrealistic. <clears throat> I also think a mistake can happen if you are too pessimistic. So you need to know what people are getting so you can at least get at least get that much. Don't go to places where people are unhappy. You can sniff that people are unhappy. Don't think that you're going to go there. And, uh, and by unhappy, I mean not like in terms of their set point of happiness, which is probably pretty constant, but in terms of the frustration with the job and whether or not they like the job. Don't go to a place where people just complain nothing about, all they do is tell you complaints about the job and how, but if you came here and did these things differently, it might not be so bad. That's not a good, that's not a good sign. Don't go to places with too much turnover. Too much turnover is a sign that they can't retain their faculty. They don't like it. Everything doesn't work well. Many places are bad. And your life could be very different. You know, I think sometimes people, people say that like, oh, well, it's all going to work out in the end. Actually, um, I think that in terms of like what you're actually doing, it could be very substantively different based on the place you go and, and the opportunities that come, uh, even holding constant your work ethic and everything else. What I suspect to be the case is you will be equally happy in whatever life throws you. That I think is true, but it would be very fundamentally different. I mean, I think that there's a reason why some places are very good at creating clinical trialists and other places are very good at creating successful laboratories scientists in other places have a continual turnover to pharmaceutical industry or continual turnover to the neighbor, um, and, uh, and, and, and and that very well would be you. Uh, you're not going to be different than the, the aggregate statistics. Um, I wrote down, expect that the contract is a lie. It's a bit tongue-in-cheek, but do expect that not everything is honored fully, so you need to at least be so confident that if some things weren't honored, you'd still be okay with it. There's an old quote, I think at Simone's Maxims, which was, assume the job is 50% as good as you think it is. Um, And then the last thing I'll say is, once you do decide and you sign on the dotted line, you're getting ready to go, how do you bid adieu to where you're at? I think people will advise you. You got to give lots of notice. The more notice, the better. Uh, that's false advice. That's false advice. You want to give decent amount of notice for your patients because those are people in whom you know they care, you care for, and they care for you. Um, that's very important. But I would say, other than that, you want to minimize. You wanna be ready that as soon as you give notice that they're gonna mail that letter to the patients immediately. You th- That's the first thing you're gonna do. They're gonna type the letter to the patients and let them know you're leaving, but they could take like six or eight weeks to do that. maybe you even draft it for them so that they can mail it out the next Monday so that um, you minimize the amount of time you're at a place once you've decided to depart. Um, too much notice is very bad. Uh, hanging on past your welcome is very bad and you wanna get the hell out of there and get onto the new place, the place that's actually, you know, that you're excited about going to. Um, And then the last piece of advice is, I think, somebody once told me that, um, you know, um, the first job is a good five-year job. And uh, what this person meant was that when you go to a first job, you often don't know what you're worth or what you should be getting or what a place should be providing and, and what you should be looking for. After a few years of working there, especially when you radio label a dollar bill, you start to learn about how the system really works and then you start to see more clearly about you know where you ought to be working. And so I do think the first job is often a five-year job and be prepared, I think, to move a second time. Second jobs, I think, are much more durable because you know what you're getting into. You know what can't be changed anywhere and you know what can be. And ultimately, my overall conclusion, I think, this is my bias, I think the obsession with one disease is totally wrong. The obsession with being a trialist is totally wrong, leads to misery. Um, the uh, uh, desire to know a lot about a lot, I think, is important. That's what most of us sought in medicine. And titles, I think, are totally worthless. What is worth a lot is preserving the time to create the cognitive things you want to create and to advance the field in the direction you want and when you really want to do that, the job talk will be a pleasure. It'll be a great pleasure to lay out your thoughts. And there shouldn't all be your thoughts. It should also be the lay of the land, but then your thoughts and where you want to take it. Um, and uh, and everything follows from there. So those are my thoughts on how to get the first job. You've got questions, put them in the comments. Email plenary session podcast uh, at gmail.com. If you like this video, you know what to do. Like, subscribe, comment, leave a message below, and uh, I'll be back. More videos, who knows what they're going to be about. The videos can be about anything, COVID-19 policy, oncology trials, and more. Uh, The podcast, I try to keep that pure these days. The podcast is going to be oncology only if you're listening on the audio feed. You're missing things if you're on the audio feed. The videos, there's so many videos you're not watching. So like, subscribe, comment, leave a message below, and until next time.